where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. Corey is the best collaborator I've ever had. He is very open, talking about math. It can be a very vulnerable process. You just heard the voice of Anna Halfpap, a PhD student in UM's mathematics program, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Dr. Corey Palmer. Corey's in his 10th year as a professor here at UM and has a fascinating background. Having spent time in Hungary as an undergrad, he returned to the Central European University for his PhD, where he tapped into that nation's distinctive intellectual tradition in mathematics, including the quirky and charismatic figure, Paul Erdos. Every episode, we ask our guests to read a poem or a short passage from literature about rivers. Corey has chosen a passage from Tibor Fischer's novel, Under the Frog, a dark, absurdist satire of life in Hungary between World War II and the 1956 revolution against Soviet power. The passage launches our conversation about his experiences in Hungary, his research interest in graph theory, his ideas about the power of collaboration, and about the importance of cultivating graduate students in the human dimensions of math. Listeners who hang around to the end will catch Corey singing a certain famous song by They Might Be Giants. Welcome to Confluence, where we lounge on the verdant riverbanks of conversation and the fun never diminishes. This is a passage from Tibor Fischer's dark comedy, Under the Frog. It had all started with a rowing trip down the Danube with Duri. They stopped for a bite of lunch on Chepel Island, and as they relaxed on the verdant riverbank, Duri spotted a small container of the type that usually housed grenades. To their joy, it was full of grenades. They did some fishing, grenades producing unbeatable results. No wasting time with maggots, bits of line, hooks, weights, waiting. But after you've harvested a good haul of zapped fish, the fun diminishes. Welcome to Confluence, Corey. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Ashby. You know, um, I'm so glad you picked that passage. Uh, you know, so often on the show, we ask people to pick passages about rivers, and they pick these beautiful, flowing, yeah. lush, pastoral beauty. And this is an anti-pastoral image, yes. and we could talk about that a little bit, but I love it. So why why'd you pick this particular passage? Well, I mean, so I love the book. It's one of the funniest I've ever read. It's one of those ones that... Funny, like dark funny. Dark funny, yes. Very, very dark. I'm about, about among the darkest things you can joke about, frankly. It's one of those books that I read every year, and it's a one-sitting type book. You read it, and you don't put it down until you're done. Um, but it's about a city that, you know, I lived in for eight years, and in locations that I've lived in, you know, granted 60 years before I did. Right. So it's kind of set in the post-World War II period leading up to the uprising or revolution against the um, Soviet-backed regime precisely. in Hungary. Yeah, Hungary, Budapest. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so reading that, you know, reminds me of my time there, even though it was quite different, obviously, <laughs> from the experience in the book. But, you know, the Danube River was a huge part of life there. You can't go a day without seeing it if you live in the city. Yeah. And so, 
it's you know just one of the passages from the book. There's many about rivers actually in the book. I mean, li- again, life centered around the river. Yeah, yeah, as so many civilizations are. But then this passage captures all of the tension around that as oh, well. Yeah. That you know, in, in a society that's undergone a ton of uh, war. Yeah. First of all, in the danger and threat of war constantly, this box of grenades is just a. It says of the type that usually holds grenades. So yes. the people can immediately recognize it as a grenade box, yes. right? The yes. two young men and. It's kind of a coming-of-age novel. Absolutely. Um, so there's that component to it, but it's threaded through that as the dark, looming, yeah. um, you know, the, the 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 reality of communism yes. and, and the life under communism, but then the dark, looming reality of the Soviet empire right on the border of, right. of Hungary and yeah. a country that's trying to maintain its identity. Mm-hmm. So that mapping of the country's identity onto the, the human identity of the main character. Yeah. Was that part of its appeal for you? Did you pick it up when you were in college? So, so just for context, you know, you spent your study abroad time yeah. there as mm-hmm. an undergrad. What, what drew you there initially anyway? So I wanted to go abroad as an undergraduate, but I didn't really know where. But then I came across this program called Budapest Semesters in Mathematics. And I was a math, you know, bachelor's student. It just seemed obvious. I wanted to go to Eastern Europe. Just it seemed like the, you know, out of the ordinary thing to do at the time. And this was a perfect, you know, marriage of, you know, Eastern Europe and mathematics. And, and that's what drew me there. No other connection beyond that. Yeah, but what a great connection. Yes. And, and it's, so did you encounter this book while you were there? Yeah, exactly. I think in graduate school, not as, not the year in, as an undergraduate. So later on, I came across it. Yeah, we're going to come back to your time of in course. graduate school, because I think that's really an important thing to yeah. kind of get to. But just staying on the Fisher novel, it when you read it, would have not been that long after it was actually published. That's right. Even though it goes back and yes. tells the story from the 40s, That's it was right. only published in the early 90s. Early 90s yeah. So yeah, talk me through that. Like, why does that resonate? For, why did it resonate for you in that particular time of your life and why you read it every year? I mean, that's real commitment. Sure, sure. Well, I uh, read it every year just because of, it's one of my top fives and I can't, it just, it's so funny. And so, I don't know, uh, so cynical. It's a, you know, a style of humor that I, that I enjoy a great deal. I don't, you know, I don't. I I think it reminds me of like the absurdities of life anywhere. Life in Hungary often was absurd, even for me. You know, just living abroad is always sort of a strange thing, right? You're this outsider, and what's normal there isn't normal for you, and so it always feels a little absurd. And so, you know, the book just sort of fit that idea really well for me, I think, and that's why it resonated with me. So yeah, and there's a way in which a book like that can really tumble you back to a time in your life. And then oh, yeah. and then because of the benchmarks, like if you're reading it every year, you're sort of thinking, it also allows you to think back in time yeah. to Hungary's yeah. uh, history. Yeah. And so it's, kind of, it's, it's a wonderful kind of telescoping effect or something like that. That's right. Yeah, despite it being fiction too, it, you know, it takes place around real events. And so I learned a bit of history of Hungary and how, not just the events, but how people thought about them. Yeah, know, it's, so. it's artful book that way in that it's actually... It's it it doesn't tell you history in a kind of you know narrative way. Right. You get these punctuated moments where the character you can feel the pressure on the character's perspective. Absolutely. And it's a it's a very perspectival novel. Yeah. Big jumps in time. Yeah. It almost reads like a like a diary yes. or or fragments. Very much. But it jumps yeah. in time. And so reader has to fill in a lot behind it. It almost it almost induces you to do that. Yeah. Like what's going on in between here? You yeah, know? that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really it's a, it's an artful book. It's it's a really good one to talk about. Well, and from standpoint of confluence, I have to sort of say a thing about the anti-pastoral part. Right. I don't know that Tibor Fisher would be aware of the sort of literary tradition of the pastoral at all. Uh-huh. I, mean, I, I think so, yeah. but but I, I can't be sure. But part of that is based in you know a, a city urban perspective on the world and, right. and a kind of country bucolic um, you know outdoor uh, perspective on the world. And this is an anti-pastoral. Because of that, you know, the dist- instead of fishing in that slow, meticulous way that a fly fisherman does, yes, yeah. they're just blowing them all up. Right. But then there's that the fun diminishes that yeah. line at the end, which really <laughs> is a, 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 a incredible insight into that phase of late adolescent life. You oh, do this yeah. impulsive thing; it seems right, but then you also recognize the pleasure is not sustainable. That's right. It's got destruction related to it. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's part of this literary tradition. Um, I think Montanans will know about the Isaac Walton Inn. You know, Isaac Walton wrote The Complete Angler, so he's kind of fetishized in the fishing community, but he actually overlapped in time with John Donne, uh-huh. the great English writer and poet who was a generation older, who used to make fun of him right. uh, for that obsession. I'm just going to read this little quick passage. Sure. This is from a poem called The Bait, which is otherwise a, a sexual seduction poem, but right in the middle of it, it has these two stanzas, let others freeze with angling reeds and cut their legs with shells and weeds or treacherously poor fish beset with strangling snare or windowy net. Let others, bold hands from slimy nets, the bedded fish in banks outrest or curious traders, sleeve silk flies, bewitch your fishes wandering eyes. So he's mocking the kind of labor and attention while in a weird way also kind of acknowledging it, acknowledging how much work goes into it. So I just thought of it in terms of this fish, like blowing fish out of the water is like the (laughs) ultimate anti-pastoral, right? right? Uh, (laughs) Setting it aside is almost like an industrial operation. That's great. That's a wonderful perspective. Yeah, I wonder if Fisher is, is, is aware of this. He's a pretty accomplished writer. I think this book in particular maybe was shortlisted for a Man Booker Prize or it something was. like that. It was, yeah, right out of the so, gate, yeah, his yeah. first book. So yeah. it's, it's a, an impressive accomplishment. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, we can kind of talk a little bit more. Well, we are going to talk a lot more about <laughs> Hungary because you ended up going back, right? Yeah. So it had this strong allure, and I yeah. think that's such an interesting part of your story that you decided to return there for your PhD um, at Central European University. What drove that choice? Yeah, so, there, I mean, there were two parts. During the year abroad there, I met... The woman that would become my wife, so that's a pretty strong draw to go back. That's a obviously. big draw. <laughs> so, but also assuming a Hungarian, in other yes, words, not yes. she's know, Hungarian and, and was living yeah. there precisely. Yes, exactly. I also met who would be my advisor too. So you know, two pretty important individuals in, in anyone's yeah. life. Well, in some so, people's life, the advisor would be more important. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, that's funny. So that was sort of. I graduated, flew back. You know, a few days afterwards to be there with no real plan. It was sort of let's do a gap year here. And then I'm going to go to, back to the U.S. and go to graduate school, and we'll see what happens. While I was there during that year, I was meeting this the, who would become my advisor to talk math occasionally. And he said, why don't you go to graduate school here? And it was his suggestion. There's a university here. Math, there's a math department. It's in English. You should apply. And so I applied and got in. And then it was like, well, I'll do a year here. Then I'll go to the U.S. But, you know, once I was there, it was, made no sense to go back. <laughs> so it was, it was perfect for, you know. For me, and you know, romantically, but professionally or scholastically, let's say at that time. So. Yeah, and that balance, of course, is hard for yes. any academic to, to. So you're making all these choices that had to do with your future goal, yeah. which you always kind of had your mind set on becoming a professor. That's right. And we'll kind of loop back to that, sure. I think. But it's it's such an important thing, I think, for this podcast. We're always trying to elevate the the narratives that drive 
professors' lives. You know, no matter what their discipline, they have these interesting stories about what drives it. So that that's a set of choices that's really hard for a, a graduate student. You're weighing out sort of prestige of your degree and right. the possibilities of research and your long-term happiness. And so you kind of made a, a bold, kind of courageous decision to be outside the American system, yeah. but to throw your hat in with a with a university. And, and we're going to talk about CEU a little yes, bit here good. because. <laughs> I'm fascinated by it, yeah. almost obsessed with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for listeners who don't know, founded by George Soros, right. the huge uh, hedge fund millionaire, made most of his money on currency trading, right. and has a bit of a libertarian streak and has become a little bit more controversial more recently. But at the time, CEU, he's uh, Soros has this Hungarian background, and mm-hmm. CEU was very explicitly founded to kind of counter the communist history and yeah. culture that he saw as you know kind of corrupting his own home country. Mm-hmm. Is that about the right account? I believe so. Yeah. And I'd did you so. know that whole backstory when you were making these calls? Uh, initially, no, no, I didn't. I didn't know that he had funded the university and so on. But you know, within the first week of attending, it was like, oh, okay, that's the story here and so on. So, yeah. You know, he was a less well-known figure at that time. You know, at that time, he was seen as the hedge fund billionaire and the philanthropist. And, you know, now his, his sort of role in society has transformed very much so, or yeah. how he's known to people, I would say. Yeah, but there's something about the CEU's purity of mission, you know, that, that actually, you know, it, it, even if you'd start to feel icky about some aspects of, you know, tech fund billionaire right. buying a university or right. founding a university, yeah, sure. you know, he did want to, it's open society yes, principles, open right? Society, he wanted to right. promote yeah. intellectual discourse in a part of the world that he himself was tied to yeah. and felt like it had, sh- had shut down that's right. open discourse. And no, so right. there is a kind of noble high ideal behind it. And I think that's why CEU, despite later controversies, has kind of continued to to have a, a bit of an ideal. I mean, yeah. there's something about it as an ideal, you know, attempt to hold off this ideological bludgeon yes. uh, of the Hungarian yeah, government. It, did you feel or sense that while you were there? Yes, absolutely. Oh, totally. So maybe less so in the mathematics department, which was always sort of an odd duck in that university. It was mostly uh, public policy type school. You know, a lot of a lot of the students that graduated for Europe as diplomats or became even prime ministers. I think the prime minister of Georgia was a, a student there at one point. Fascinating. And so that was definitely a big part of, you know, the community there. And when you interacted with other students that were pursuing those those subjects, you really got to feel that type of thing. Yeah. And of course, it's, it's fallen on a little bit of hard times. Had to move out of Budapest. Right. It's now mostly in Vienna, I yeah. think, or maybe all in Vienna. I think all, essentially all, yeah. Under think, the yeah. Orban regime. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we hope to hang on, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so... Through that experience in the CEU, you got a, a deeper and richer encounter with the Hungarian intellectual tradition, For sure. which includes this this great giant of Hungarian math, yeah. Paul Erdős. Yeah, Erdős. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. You sort of cite him as your intellectual hero. Why is that? Yeah. So I mean, I think so. He he's a wonderful individual, a fascinating singular person. There's no one really else like him in academia. He was basically homeless his entire academic career. He bounced from institution to institution as a visitor, living out of two suitcases and doing mathematics, you know, as every single waking hour of his life. I know plenty of people who are workaholics and, you know, dedicated to their job, but no one even an order of magnitude close to this lifestyle. He converted, yeah, he converted the whole ideal of mathematical collaboration into yeah. a lifestyle. He just Absolutely. eschewed all institutional ties That's and just right. threw himself out there. But he kept getting received yes. because, of course, the impact he was having on the field. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, he's responsible for huge advances and a popularization of, of the subject of combinatorics and graph theory. I know the subject's 
too. And, and you, you said it really there with collaboration. His legacy is, to me, the idea of collaboration in mathematics. Sometimes from the outside, you know, mathematics is perceived as this sort of lone individual working, you know, by themselves at the desk doing all the work alone. Totally. And, and, and Hollywood, when it yes. plays into that, always tells that story of exactly. the sort of isolated genius yeah. who has these insights in a vacuum or something That's right. like that. That's right. And those individuals do exist, which is fascinating. And many of them are the, uh, among the greatest individuals, you know, in mathematics sometimes. But most of them, and most mathematicians, do not work alone. It's, you know, it's much more effective to work together for a variety of reasons. Just like in the other disciplines, of course. You know, you, well, I don't know, and that's I think that's worth talking about uh-huh. a little bit. I mean, maybe that's true. And, uh-huh. and I mean, you know, in my neck of the woods, it, where people working alone is actually the norm, sure, rather than right. collaboration. But in STEM disciplines, right. you know, the lab culture and, yeah. and certainly the need to exchange technological insights and and, and uh, you know innovations it drives a lot of this collaborative work. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. Yeah, and in, in, in math, it's the same. You know, people bring different perspectives, different expertises, certainly. And for me, frankly, a lot of it, it's just more fun working with other people, I find. The, the thing I love about it the most is sharing discovery, right? You you crack a hard problem and you share it with the people you're working with. And if you work by yourselves, there's no one to share it with. No one understands exactly what you're doing. That's so yeah. interesting because that's like the affect, and this is a big part of the podcast is we're trying to bring to the surface the inner life and feelings and emotions and psychology of being a professor and a researcher, which is not something that gets talked about a lot publicly. So that feeling of joy, I mean, mean, that's super important, right? And and in math, when you crack a problem, Mm -hmm. you know it when you've done it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a big moment. And if you can share it with people immediately, because we know when you publish it, it's going to take... A year. A year, yeah, right? Exactly. You're going you're yeah. to send it off yeah. as a written paper. Yeah. It's going to go through review. It's yeah. going to be reviewed for forever. But yeah. that initial moment is incredible, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, yeah. And it's like most things, they're, you know, better when shared, I think, at least, you know. And, and, but really, it's because those, those people understand exactly what you went through. They were sitting there in the chairs together. And, yeah. Yeah. So, the, what is your Erdos number? The it's, Erdos number yeah. being, the number of steps it takes, I guess, or lines that yeah. you can trace back to him himself. Do you That's know right. It? With common, cl- yes, it's two. My my advisor wrote two. papers with Paul Erdős. Okay, yeah, well so there you go. It's the right. lowest currently achievable Erdős number. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. Right, because he's, <laughs> he's he's passed, passed away. away now. That's amazing. <laughs> two, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So that's is a joke, you know, for listeners, a joke within math because fifteen hundred, I think, is the number I saw collaborative articles yes. that Erdős published in yeah. his lifetime. But with if some he worked six hundred co-authors or something like that, yeah, I don't want to say you cheated because you didn't know, right? But wow, that's a direct line yeah. into the Erdos lineage, yeah. right? The tree. Yeah, it's like a Bacon number. It's the same idea, right? That people do that with movies. And yep, we do the ke- six Irish. degrees of Kevin Bacon. That's right. Exactly. exactly. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> so, and I, I, I noticed just because I have an interest in it, an early publication with neuroscientists. How yes. did that unfold? Yeah, that was interesting. That was, I think, while I was still in graduate school, we were, we had a course with some, you know, mathematical neuroscientists, I guess you'd call them. Someone that needed some mathematical expertise, reached out to them and said, hey, are any of your students, you know, knowledge, have uh, some background? Well, I don't think we needed to have background in neuroscience. I'll get to that. In fact, that, that part was fun about it. Uh, so they just reached out to students and me and another guy said, hey, we're interested. That sounds like a fun project. Let's learn a little bit and see what we can do. And that's just how it happened. You know, one person knew another person and they were looking for help. And then I got involved in that project, which lasted a few years. I was mostly doing, I would say, like data analysis. So right. they had a bunch of two-dimensional data of like placement of neurons uh, in, in slices of a um, brain of a, of a monkey, uh, marked somehow. And they wanted to, me- to measure density of these things, like how compact were they in certain areas. And 
I came up with some tools to measure that, and, and we wrote a few papers based on that stuff. So. Wow. And, and of course, the, the sort of next level up abstraction for listeners is that people with, with really high-level math skills are in great demand. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you want to be involved in research projects like that, yeah. and you have this set of math skills, there's kind of infinite places for you yeah. to kind of apply, do applied work. Yeah, this, this project was such a good example of that. I wasn't a particular expert in data science. I didn't know much neuroscience. I took a few courses in college, but they wanted this, this measure of density, which just was a general thing that, you know, was outside of neuroscience. It could be anything. And so I sort of thought about it a little bit and said, well, here's a measure that sort of matches the, the setting there. And to me, it was sort of a natural idea to come up with. And they were blown away that, oh, we, ne- you know, this is not something that would have occurred to us. And we'd, we'd never seen this analysis. And, you know, that was a matter of my training was just different than theirs. And yep. I'd seen something they hadn't seen. And to me, it was easy, let's say, and to them, it was hard. But it, you know, it wasn't a matter of cleverness necessarily. It was a matter of background. And yeah, that's so great. And, and so, yeah, to p- pull again, pull up, and it sounds like an advertisement for our you know <laughs> podcast, but I mean, it's kind of one of the things we really like to highlight is that interdisciplinarity, when it's really functioning yeah. well, yeah. it's allowing people to do the thing that they do really well, but in great in conversation with people in, in adjacent disciplines yeah. where they can use that expertise. So there's a really profound exchange of ideas yeah, rather yeah. than just, you know, mere... Uh, technocratic or, or like areas that often will call themselves interdisciplinary, but are really so enmeshed in one another to begin with. Yes. But like, you know, you really taught them something and they taught you something, right? Yeah, in other absolutely. words, something new, a third yeah. thing emerged out of yeah. that combination. Yeah, totally. In fact, I, I remember the beginning. It's, it's proof that this is interdisciplinary. We couldn't even communicate when we started, right? They, they wanted this thing and I didn't know what that meant. And then over time, oh, you want this? And it translated to my language. And they, oh, that's the degree of the vertex or something. And they had some other term. And there's this like funny period yeah. of time where you're feeling each other out for what's going on here exactly. And yeah. And yeah, and it is hard work too, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that kind of collaboration yeah. takes time. It and does. so the, the joy side of it that we talked about earlier also has this other phase oh, where yeah. it's like struggling yeah. to c- create common terms. That's right. And, yeah. And the goals were different too. I remember I was sitting there the whole time thinking, what, what are we going to prove? What's the thing to prove? Well, they weren't going to prove anything, right? They're gathering evidence to support a hypothesis. There wasn't going to be a proof in the mathematical sense. And, that's interesting. But, you know, that's, yeah. that's what I was primed to do. And so... Yeah. So how did you kind of come to focus on graph theory, which ended up being kind of the field where you've defined most yeah. of your work? Yeah. There, I think there are a couple periods of time that were important for that. So when I was in college, still in California, I took a course in computer science, like this introduction to discrete math course. It was in the computer science department, not the math department. And there was some graph theory in that course. And I really liked it. It really clicked with me. But I just was like, oh, this isn't math. This is computer science. And so I just kind of kept that in mind. I was like, I still want to be a mathematician, even though this stuff's cool. It's just whatever. And then it was when I went to Hungary. And there's sort of the world center of graph theory. And during that year abroad, I had several courses in, in graph theory that were ordinary mathematics courses. And I was like, oh, so this is math after all. Okay, this is what I want to do. You know, this is, this is a subject for sure. I mean, there were two courses in particular that focused on that subject were two, probably the two best courses I've ever taken. And so, you know, it's, I always wonder, is it, was it the professors were really good? Was the subject itself very good? Was it something I was inclined to do? Of course, it's a combination and of all some combination yeah. of all those yeah. things, yeah. And that's contingency like that, you know, I don't want to say luck, right? right. But contingency yeah. like oh. that defines a lot of our oh, intellectual yeah. trajectories, right? Yeah, that absolutely. it's just right thing at the right time matches our, you know, interests and the people involved. And, and you know, you're a people person. Yeah. You clearly, yeah, that's important to you. Yeah. So that connection to a particular teacher, yeah. you know, would, would kind of be a launching point, I of guess. Of course. You know, I, I just because... Because a podcast is um, 
you know, an oral medium and math is hard to talk about yeah, sure. orally. One of the things I wanted to just sort of make as an observation uh-huh. and hear what you think about it is the wonderful meta- metaphors that are in basic math yeah. ideas, like the tree packing conjecture. <laughs> Some of the stuff, the tree packing yeah. conjecture and yeah. the rainbows, yeah. and it, it, it almost, they're very evocative yes. to me from a language yeah, standpoint. Yeah, yeah. They almost feel like tree packing conjecture almost feels like the beginning of a Grisham novel, a, gr- a title of a, gr- <laughs> yes, a Grisham like novel or something <laughs> like that. So, so, but it, anyway, I mean, that's just a glib aside, but I think there's something to the idea that math has to convert its the detail of its quantitative work into these higher level concepts that they can then package a set of ideas around. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge thing for me, especially in mathematics is this metaphorical thinking and descriptions because you, you do need to write things formally to make a full, fully fleshed out argument, but those are hard to read. You know, the, the most perfect full, you know, logical argument is for a computer to read, frankly. So when you want to communicate these ideas to a person, and that's an important thing, when you write a mathematical paper, true or not, it needs to be readable by a human, right? That's who we're writing for is other humans. And so including metaphorical language like this that's descriptive helps put a picture in your head that, oh, I, this is going on because of the because it's a tree-like structure and it, the tree reminds you of the object you're working with. It can be very helpful. Yeah, speaking of neuroscience, it's tapping into some cognitive structure yeah. that's a little bit more foundational to human evolution than quantitative reasoning, right. which is, you know, I don't want to say it's it's it rides on top of evolution, right? In yeah. other words, there's yeah. not, not a natural course for developing yeah. mathematical ideas. Right. They are cultural products, yeah, which sure. have incredible power, yeah. right? But they're not deeply rooted the way a tree is. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of what we do on the on the show also is sort of tell the Montana story. So, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Hungary. Right. But we haven't talked about Montana. How'd you end up here? Yeah, it's a funny story. I mean, so I was... I, after the Hungary years, I came to the U.S. for a visiting position in, at University of Illinois, and that was going to be a temporary position. So I was sort of, from there, was applying to jobs all over the country. Uh, you know. And with academia, you, know, you often don't know where you'll end up, but you have some control. So I applied all over the country and had a number of interviews in Texas, California, Rhode Island, Montana. And, and the way it worked was funny. I think that Montana was the last place I applied to and the last place I interviewed at, just the way that things worked out. The last best place. Yes, that's great. Yes, absolutely. That's right. I remember those ads. So, <laughs> Before I came, Mark Kyle, who, who was one of my colleagues in the math department, was on the hiring committee, he gave me a call while I was uh, interviewing, I think in San Diego, and say, hey, Corey, we want to bring you up and do an interview and this and that. And I said, sounds great. I'm in the middle of an interview, but I'll, I'll give you a call back in a few days. And in the back of my mind, I was kind of thinking, well, if I get an offer from anywhere else, I'll, I'll give them a call and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to take this offer and you know, go on to the next candidate. I don't want to waste their time. That didn't happen, so I flew out here. And almost immediately, it was like, oh, my goodness, I'm glad I didn't get an offer yet. Like, uh, upon arrival in the airport and driving down toward Mount Sentinel, I was like, okay, there's something What, what time of here. year? It was February, I think. So it was snowy. It wasn't too warm, yeah. but it was beautiful, of course. Yeah. And I'd been living in cornfields for the last two years, too. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of a mountain guy. You know, I grew up in California. We spent the summers in the Sierras all the time. And, and that was something that resonated with me, too, is I remember the smell of pine trees just in the city. And I was like, this, is, this reminds me of camping, you know, and I, I loved that. Yeah. And then the, tr- the real thing that brought me here, though, was the, the people in the interview. You know, we just clicked. And I've always thought that working in a department is kind of like a marriage sometimes. You're going to be with these people maybe for the, your entire life or your entire professional life. And it's important to get along, I think. Yeah. And you don't always know in a two-day interview with you will. But in this case, it was like, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. These people are fantastic. We got along immediately. I think Mark and I, when he drove me to the hotel 
at the end of the interview, we kind of sat in the front seat of the car chatting for a little bit about this and that. I think we talked for probably two hours or something like that, you know, <laughs> in the front it's of the amazing. hotel. And it, yeah. and it went back and I was like, this is, this is, I got to go here. This is the place I got to go. And That's so amazing. I have those stories too about not just my visit, but about when a faculty member that we're talking to, you know, that those conversations in the parking lot, yeah, right, are, are crucial. Yeah, they're they they're are. kind of part of, you know, it's something about that context where, you know, it's a transition where, you know, you get a little bit more honest, maybe yeah, a little bit yes. more direct. Yes, yes. And, and this is so great you're bringing this up because this is part of the goal of our podcast is to talk a little bit about the granular life of the professor. Yeah. And that's the job yeah. search, right? Which yeah. is such a strange oh, yeah. dance. Yes, uh, you, it know, is. you referred to sort of the marriage, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. prospect. And of course, people think about uh, marriage. This is the meet the family. Yeah combined with meet the friends, combined yeah. with all of those rituals yeah. where a couple might kind of like circulate to a community and find out, is this going to work, yeah, right? Um, it, it's got all that wrapped up in it. Totally. And, and maybe some 19th century components courting. of like, yeah, <laughs> yes, and not just so, courting, yeah. but uh-huh. like, do the family estates belong uh, yes, together? Right, you know, sure. <laughs> it, it, It's multi-layers. <laughs> yeah, I'm so yeah. glad you're bringing this up because I think that is one of those from the outside, especially for graduate students yeah. who are listening to the to the episodes, you know, to know that there's on the other side of it, there's a human every single single time, yeah. right? That there's you as a human and there's all the humans around you, right? right? No matter how abstract and competitive and all of the elements, you know, there's, you're making a choice that's really ultimately about people in place. Yeah, and absolutely. and you just hit on the two ones that yeah. make this place yeah. special, right? Yeah. That, that the beauty of, of our, I mean, our unbelievable it's campus unbelievable. and town, yeah. but then also just the people that, uh, that yeah. keep it rolling. Absolutely. Well, how, and so it, uh, this, this is a great segue actually into your role as a, as a mentor and advisor mm-hmm. of graduate mm-hmm. students. You've got, you've been here now, you're in, you're kind of going into your 10th year right. and, and you've got some PhD students mm-hmm. now, you know, one out there in the profession That's and right. one recently graduated and then a couple in the pipeline. And, yeah. you know, PhD students don't grow on trees, right? No. I mean, it, it, you, you cultivate them. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your sort of philosophy of graduate education. What are you looking for in a student and what is that relationship like for sure. you? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty organic how it happens, you know, when I when I end up taking on a graduate student. You know, it's it's also itself a bit of a courtship dance as well. You know, the student wants to choose you and you want to choose a student too. It's, you know, it, it's often mutual. It will be typically, you know, I'll have students in my courses. Although even before that, when I see applications, I'll have a pretty good idea about, you know, this is a student that probably would work great in my group or work, you know, well with me together. And the things I'm looking for definitely are passion for the subject is, is the, for me, the first thing. You, you got to want to do the math. It, it's, it's, I often lament when people say, oh, math is hard. Math is hard. I, I don't love to hear that. But the truth is, it is kind of hard. It's not yeah. easy. It, it yeah. continues to be hard. Even if you're, you know, good at it, you choose problems that are hard still. Yeah. And, and that's, so. that's probably, I mean, that, that issue of making sure passion is driving the student of course, across all graduate programs, that's what yeah. most graduate advisors are going to, they want to see a work ethic, yeah. right? And they want to see someone who's going to, the passion is going to get them through all the bumps in the road, which there are a lot, right? That is this this idea that we talk about on the show of the CV of failures, yeah. you know, that most of us have more failures than successes. Course, that's just yeah. a reality, right? Yeah. But grad students don't necessarily know that, right? right? In other words, going into it, they don't realize, they look at a professor and look at this, you know, this, this person's living the life that yeah. I want to live yeah. and doing the things I want to do. But the road to get there yeah. is always bumpy for all of us, oh, right? Yeah. And so addressing that imposter syndrome, that yeah. sense that everyone else is doing better than you are, right. is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. That was, for me, an important thing in graduate school was to actually talking with other graduate students and just being honest with each other. Like, I didn't understand the homework here. I don't know what's going on. I'm completely confused. And just admitting that, because when you did, the other students admitted it too. And then that, you know, helped everyone out. It was right. like, oh, okay, it's 
I'm yeah, I'm supposed to be getting this, but if I'm not, I'm not like I, it's, it's not, not that weird. I don't belong yeah, here. It's yeah, not yeah. weird. And and I didn't find that out from my professors till much later. And so I make a point now with my students of communicating that to them too. You know, you certainly want them to have high expectations of themselves, but you you also shouldn't you know, the message shouldn't be that you can't fail. You know, doing anything in academia and I think especially math is constant failure. When you're trying to prove something, 99% of the time you're coming up with ideas that don't work and then yeah. finally one works. And so you do get sort of immunized a little bit to failure in yeah, that sense. Yeah, and, and if, I mean, if something has been, if thousands of big people have been working on it for decades, right, it's it's good to have that perspective. That's right. You kind of have referred to that. I think it's an interesting fact. I'm not sure it's true across STEM disciplines uh-huh. that the history of the discipline matters, but it seems to matter yeah. to you. Talk a little bit yeah. why about and how you convey that to your graduate students. Yeah, I think, I mean, so, you know, math is like this, you mentioned culture before. It, it's a cultural thing, you know, that p- humans have been doing for perhaps longer than we've been speaking, right? Counting. Like the, what, the first things we probably needed to do was count the number of, you know, elk out there or, you know, for doing basic trading. Or estimate thing. it because uh, yes. we couldn't count them. No, you couldn't count them indeed, exactly. But About a dozen. About a dozen. <laughs> Yeah. A handful, a right? A few dozen, yes. yeah. And in fact, there's you can go back and find Paleolithic artifacts of like a, you know a deer bone with notches in it that were presumably counting, deer, enumerating deer counts. something. Yeah. Probably deer yeah. counts, Herd exactly. Counts right. And so, yeah. so I think about that a lot. Just continuing this human tradition, just for the sake of continuing a tradition. I remember there's there's pieces of uh, I, don't, I don't know how to describe them, but they're they're art, especially like in England, like Stonehenge and things of that nature. There's one made out of white rock that's crushed and in the shape of an antelope or something like that that you can only view from above. And it's been around for thousands of years. And humans still go and like clean it up and put new crushed rock to continue this piece of art. And it's this like huge collaboration. And, you know, you ask, well, what for? There's no like reason other than it's, well, it's, I mean, it's art. You know, it's, yeah. it, we, should, we should continue traditions like this. And I think of mathematics that way. Uh, that's a you know. fantastic way to think about math because that's, of course, not how most people think of right. it. They think of it as this chore. You yes, know, indeed. Whereas you're yeah. sort of putting it in the framework of primal civilizational yes. Yes. Um, structures yeah, like, of, of how we think, yeah. communicate. You know, yeah. solve problems together. That's right. That's beautiful. Absolutely. And I, I think, I guess, what I'm, yeah, what I, the pointed part of that question mm-hmm. is, I think some empirical sciences they have a narrative of rupture. Yes, where you know they say the scientific revolution yeah, changed course. everything. That's right. When I when I'm joking about it, I uh, refer to it as the we now know. Uh, you know, which is always that now is you were correcting past flaws or yeah, past yeah, errors. Sure. And that's not wrong, of course. Right, I mean, no. you know, there's a lot of bad knowledge that, that cultures pass along. Right. But this is a different narrative. This yeah. is a narrative of continuity yes. with problem solving. So now, yeah. no matter how much better we are at math, mm-hmm. which is indisputable right. collectively, yeah. it's just also the case that it's if it's rooted as a primary function, yeah. that's the thing that we all share. Yeah, absolutely. A, a two-year-old kid trying to figure out how to count stuff. You yeah, know? it's the same thing. Absolutely. And, you know, we ha- there's work, proofs done by, say, the Greeks, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago that are still valid. That, that may not be the case in chemistry, you know, right. that, uh, right. you know, going back even uh, 50 years, there's much chemistry that's changed and so on. You know, I'm not an expert in the field, but, yeah. but, but those proofs remain true in mathematics. And we, we do have our own revolutions and discoveries that, oh, this was actually wrong, but it tends to be we, we can build on the past so much. You build up rather than kind of yeah. throw the foundation away and start that's over. Right. That's, that's right. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's also this concept that you've referred to, um, which, which really a- appeals to me, of mathematical maturity. Yeah, right. Talk a little bit about that concept. I, I, I find it very appealing that there's a, a kind of craft way of discussing the evolution of a mathematician's mind. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've never 
really seen a written definition of what mathematical maturity is. It's just a thing that when you hear the words, you kind of get an idea for like, oh, what that should be. Um, it, it certainly has a nice ring to it, but it, it sort of describes the idea of how comfortable are you with abstract concepts and and thinking, you know, very very clearly and describing your ideas to other mathematicians or other anyone, you know, and that that's something that you gradually build up. And when you think back on your career, I can remember times when, you know, as an undergraduate, I didn't know exactly what a proof was and how to construct one. And then you there were was doing a time. them, but you were doing them because. Because you kind of had mastered the yes. procedures. Yes, precisely. Exactly. And then uh, you slowly develop a point where, oh, now I understand why that was happening. And that's, that's a, you know, a step up in, in your mathematical maturity. And you know, it's something that goes on forever. Um, and and you know, one of my colleagues often talks about how that's how he knows when a PhD student is done, that they've reached this certain, they, they're sort of a colleague now. And because they've reached that level of mathematical maturity that you talk to each other as a peer now. And it's no, you're no longer... Yes, you have more experience, but they're at this level now where, oh, they're just like me, essentially. That's a level at which you'd be collaborating yes. and potentially publishing. Yes, right? precisely. Yeah, starting to publish papers with that's your right. students. Yeah. And, and, of course, that's really common in um, STEM disciplines, you know, very uncommon in the humanities. Yeah. But, but you're kind of in this middle space where, yeah. you know, your students will get to a point where you might be working on a problem together and then end up uh, publishing something. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a key part. I mean, that's something... You know, most of my students' papers are joint work with me. That's, you know, I, 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 one of the reasons I have PhD students is, you know, you create these mini collaborators. I like working with people, and, you know, there's a limited number of people locally that work in my field, and so you train your students to, to work on the stuff you want to work on. And, uh, you know, even if I'm more experienced, they're, they still bring new perspectives and new ideas that I don't have, you know. So. Yeah, and I think with the PhD students, that's really interesting because that, that then the way that maps onto your work as a professor is you're maturing students in this sort of three to five year window, yeah. right? It takes yeah. them a yeah. while to kind of get to that point. That's right. And then I think in math, it's kind of similar to your humanities PhD in terms yeah. of you don't want all of them finishing necessarily at the same no. time. No. You kind of want yeah. them interlocking yeah, yeah, so that sure. you have one that's kind of finishing and yes. one that's starting and you're working with them at different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they, I have them work together too. That's an important part too. I the the sort of I sometimes think of it as the lab model in some of the STEM fields where you might have a big group and there's more senior even postdocs working with the graduate students and you know, the way we work is a bit different, but the way that there's training at each levels is important. My senior graduate students help train the junior ones, you know, yeah. both in the meetings and outside. And that's good for the older students to practice the teaching, but yeah. it's also actually like you were referring to this earlier with graduate student culture, it, it creates a graduate student culture. There's some conversations graduate students are going to have more effectively yes. one of one another absolutely. than with you anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's so huge. That's been a big part of, in our department, something I've observed is different time periods, the, the graduate student culture is better or worse. You know, they, they push each other hard and they also support each other. And sometimes the culture isn't as good where people aren't talking to each other and everyone's sort of just, you know, hacking it out on their own. And that that's, and maybe a little competition is yeah, part that of can, that. That can happen too. Absolutely. So, you know, I think grad student culture is, is massive. It's one, for me, it was one of the, I learned more from my fellow students as a graduate student than my professors. No question about it. Yeah. The first paper I wrote was with another PhD student, not with my advisor. And yeah. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and you're learning this sort of, um, you know, sociology of the field and yes. you're, you're coming up together and you're approaching that. So I think, you know, it's, it's, this conversation has been great because it's hit, it's hit out the cross section of a lot of the issues that we really like to highlight, but that this is a, is a subtle one, which is you need that, that mesh between an advisor who is going to be a, a great mentor at the faculty right. level, 
but then you also need that student lateral horizontal relationship yeah, to kind of absolutely. sustain itself. Absolutely. Oh, that's huge. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been yeah. amazing. We end every episode with our quick hitters. Uh-huh. Yes, right? the so quick hitters. Short <laughs> answers. You ready for it? Yeah, of course. Okay. Morning or night person? Yeah. <laughs> uh, morning. Uh, sorry. What? Are... <laughs> Night. Very, very much night. With all my heart, night. Yeah, night, so. night, night. Yes. Like uh, we started this interview at 11, and maybe that was a little early. I was late, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Sunrise or sunset? Well, see, see above, right? I mean, sunrises are amazing, but I, I was talking to one of my PhD students yesterday, and this came up exactly, and sunrise is usually a sign that you messed up. You're, yeah. You, you've still been up. So. Yeah, you stayed up all night. Yes. I mean, that's yeah. a special kind of that sunrise. That is a special. Actually, but you're I've, not doing yeah. it every day. No, definitely not. No, it usually <laughs> ruins the next day. Right. So. Winter or summer? Summer. Okay. Hiking? Yeah, hiking for sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yellowstone or Glacier? Yellowstone, yeah, I would yeah. say. Animals, what, what's the appeal there? The geology, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. The geology. I mean, yeah, it's just sort of there's nowhere else like it. There's nowhere like glacier either, but right. but yeah, Yellowstone's tough choice, special. right? Which is, baby yeah. do you love more? What's your favorite Montana River and why? I guess the Clark Fork. I don't know. I mean it's just I, I like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, right? I love living around rivers and I did for many years in Hungary and same reason here. I just it's one should live on a river. That's how I think we should live. Yeah. So. It's our home river. Yeah. Runs right. right through there exactly. right in the middle. Yeah, and I think, you know, like I'm sure the Danube, but maybe, no, less so the Danube, but, you know, this is a river that's gone through a lot of change. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, you talk to Missoulians, you know, about the Clark Fork in the 80s, and it was a trash heap. Oh, know, really? Wow. Junked up and oh, terrible. Boy, that's and, terrible. And it's gone through this yeah. real evolution. And, of course, we've taken the dams out recently, yeah. and yeah. so it's, it's very different now. It's, we're naturalizing that river. That's great. Yeah. What's your favorite Montana mountain range and why? I don't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't name one. I don't know. Is it fair to say the Rockies? That's sort of ridiculous, <laughs> right? That's a big range. <laughs> Pintlers, Bitterroots, you know. Maybe uh, Bitterroots. I mean, that's a good one for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So. What's your favorite charismatic megafauna? Charismatic megafauna. Well, great white sharks. Oh, yeah, oh so. love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, went outside of Montana yeah. entirely. Yeah, awesome. yeah. So the- <laughs> What's your uh, shadow profession? So that this would be the one you kind of thought about or flirted with sure, or maybe sure. dabbled in or maybe still fantasize yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely living in my dream job, so I don't think about it too much. But when I was in college and high school, I wanted to be a video game designer. That mm. was like many you know, teenage kids do. Yeah. Uh, that was something, a big part of my life. Still play video games. If you like something, you want to create. And yeah. That was something I wanted to do. And when I went to college, you know, I did computer science and thought, maybe that's what I'll do. But the math just sort of, you know, I couldn't overcome that. And that was what I had to do. The intellectual so, passion and, yeah. and this lifelong dream of being... A learner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What would your best friends say about you when they were asked what you were like? <laughs> My best friend, what would they say about me? Uh, that I'm a, I don't know, a people person, a nice guy. Someone like, I don't know if they would say that I'm someone who can't say no, but that's true. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. What's the one piece of music you'd be willing to listen to for all eternity? I, one individual one I don't know. I love the band They Might Be Giants. It's sort of silly and irreverent and anything from their catalog I could listen to over and over and over again, I think. so. And I thought you might go to something Hungarian, famous musical yeah. tradition. There's great, great music in Hungary as well. Yeah, at least, for instance, in Bartók. I mean, their music is incredible, so... Yeah. Yeah, probably if I had to listen to something forever, it would be something classical. That would be, you know, some, anything else would become unbearable probably. After a while, even <laughs> yes. they might be giants. Even they might be giants. Yeah. <laughs> What's the voice you hear in your head when you go to sleep at night? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of s- silly, but like the voice telling me all the stuff that's on the to-do list for tomorrow. Yeah, I, have trouble I know that sleeping. voice. Yeah. Do you have trouble sleeping? <laughs> I do. Actually, I found a little hack for this is when I lay down for bed, I, I just write those things down. 
And then if they're on paper, they're sort of like, okay, they're to be done, but my, I don't have to dwell over them on, in my head as much. It's a simple thing and often works. But Yeah, externalize it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much yeah, for joining us on yeah, Confluence, yeah. Corey. My pleasure. This was great. Istanbul, Istanbul, New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. And I'll wash that. Mm-hmm. And say it, and say it, From and Pride say it. and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs>